John chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, Fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, Now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water now become wine and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. After this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and his brothers and his disciples, and they stayed there for a few days. This is God's word. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we ask that you would come and bless us as we study your word this morning. We are a needy people. And out of your word, help us to find the rich treasures of your glory to sustain us, to satisfy us. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, have you ever watched those YouTube videos where someone gets hurt in like a funny way or they get embarrassed? I believe the younger folks call them fail videos. This week, I knew I was preaching on a, the wedding at Cana, and so I decided to look up some wedding fails on YouTube. And they have some hilarious ones on there, where the entire wedding party is standing on a dock, waiting to get their photo taken, and then the dock collapses, and they all fall into the water. Um, there's a, another video where the bride and groom go to kiss each other, and they bump each other's foreheads. But my favorite one, and there's a couple of them, but my favorite is when the best man starts to hand the ring off to the pastor, it falls out of his hands, it bounces into the water. <laughs> the wedding is one of the most important days for the bride and the groom. And when things like this happen, it often leads to a whole bunch of drama and embarrassment if you don't have a sense of humor. Weddings are a big deal. Months and even years go into planning some of them. And I just recently got licensed to do weddings, which is both exciting and frightening. <laughs> because in officiating a wedding, I have the ability to make the bride and the groom's day more memorable. But I also have the opportunity to mess something up royally and have someone really mad at me for the rest of their lives. And so in our text this morning, there is 
a crisis at a wedding that could lead to extreme embarrassment, even legal repercussions. The wine has run out, but Jesus miraculously turns this water into wine, which leads to the joy being restored, his glory being seen by some and his disciples to believe in him. The Gospel of John can be divided into two sections, two main sections. The first half, some people call the book of signs, because in it we have Jesus performing seven miraculous signs. One we are going to be looking at this morning. He turns water into wine in chapter 2, and in chapter 4 he heals the royal official's son. In chapter 5 he heals a lame man. In chapter 6, he feeds the 5,000. And again, in the second half of chapter 6, he walks on water. In chapter 9, he heals the man born blind. And in the seventh, he raises Lazarus from the dead. So the first, first half of the book of John is sometimes called the book of signs. And then the second half is often called the book of glory because it focuses on the glory of Christ, mainly his sufferings, his death, and his resurrection. And I say all that to point out that John, inspired by the Holy Spirit, has organized his gospel in a specific way in order to teach us things about Jesus. And so this morning, we're going to be looking at the first of Jesus' signs where he turns the water into wine. And tons of books and commentaries have been written about this miracle, and a lot that completely miss the point. There are some that dig too deep into things like how much alcohol was in this wine. That's not the point. And just in case you're wondering, there was plenty of alcohol in this wine. The passage says that they had drunk too much, and then Jesus makes some of the best wine. It's not Welch's grape juice. It's not your your Costco boxed wine, but it's the type of wine that wineries would keep in a bottle in the basement cellar of their their winery and bring out for special moments. It's that type of wine. This is the best wine, and Jesus makes lots of it. But why is this the first miracle? John says that this was the first of his signs. What What is this miracle pointing to? Well, this morning, I hope we will answer that. If you're taking notes, we're going to be looking at this account in three different sections. We see Jesus in three roles. We see Jesus as the guest in verses 1 and 2. We see Jesus as the son in verses 3 to 5. And then we see Jesus as the host in verses 6 to 12. And the main point, which I hope you see in the text this morning, is this. Jesus' new wine gives abundant joy to all who see and believe. Jesus' new wine gives abundant joy to all who see and believe. All right, well, let's first look at Jesus, the guest. The first two verses in this chapter kind of set the scene for us. So look at verses 1 and 2. On the third day... There was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. 
So John gives us a reference to days here again. On the third day, that's in reference to Jesus' last encounter with Nathaniel. So two days after that, we are now on the seventh day of the week, which is significant. And Jesus is at this wedding. It must have been a wedding for a close friend or relative because Jesus' mom is there. And he's able to bring his friends, his disciples, probably five of them at this point. We know Andrew's with him, Peter, Philip, Nathaniel, and then this unnamed disciple, most likely John. And this is the first week of his ministry, and he's attending a wedding. He's not too busy. He's not too important to attend this wedding. He wasn't some religious man who locked himself away from the world. He was often invited to weddings and parties, and he attended some of them. He was a friend of sinners. He had grace and compassion on the lost. Jesus is a guest at this wedding, but something has gone horribly wrong. We have a crisis. The wine has run out. We see that in verse 3, right? Mary, the mother of Jesus, comes to him and says they have no wine. Again, they must have been pretty close to whoever's wedding this was since Mary feels some responsibility to, to handle the situation. And did you notice that John does not include Mary's name in this section? Actually, no one is named other than Jesus. We don't know who the bride and groom are. We don't know their names. And Mary here is identified as Jesus' mother. You can see what John is doing. He wants all the focus on Jesus. He wants all eyes on him. And so Mary comes to Jesus with this problem. They have no wine. But why is this such a big problem? Think about a wedding that you last attended. And let's say you did need a big lunch because you knew that later that night you were going to have some really good food at the wedding reception. And as people are getting served their meals, the waiter comes to your table and says, sorry, we've run out of the steak and lobster, and all we has, have is the tofu veggie plate. <laughs> as the guest of this wedding, you would feel pretty uncared for, hopefully forgiving the bride and the groom, but pretty bummed. And I'm sure if the bride and the groom found out, they would feel pretty embarrassed. In our culture, we can kind of understand what's happening here, but just in part. In the context of the culture of this passage, the problem is way bigger than we could imagine. A wedding celebration in this culture could last as long as a week. And the groom, the groom was financially responsible. The groom. Fathers with daughters, don't you wish this was true of our culture? But to run out of something during this celebration would be extremely embarrassing in this shame culture. Some commentators mention that, if you, that this could have led to lawsuits. Lawsuits. There was this great expectation to provide and care for your guests during the duration of the wedding. But could you imagine getting a lawsuit for running out of wine at your wedding? This was a real thing. When the wine runs out, the party's over. And there's a deeper meaning here. 
In the Bible, wine is a symbol for joy. And so we could translate Mary's words from they have no wine to they have no joy. The joy was running out. And so the deeper truth found here is that life apart from Jesus is a life without joy, a life without wine. We don't know why Mary comes to Jesus. There's nothing that suggests that she expects him to perform some sort of miracle. But she knows her son and thinks that he can help in some way. And so how does Jesus respond to Mary's concerns? Not only we see Jesus as the guest, we also see Jesus as the son. How does Jesus respond to Mary's concern? Look at verse 4. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. The way that Jesus speaks to his mom here catches us off guard, if you're actually paying attention. Because we know if we spoke to our mothers that way, things would end very differently. Woman. He doesn't call her mom. Not mommy. Woman. But calling his mother woman was not rude. But it was also not normal. The word here is similar to her, to him calling her lady or ma'am. Calling her woman was a respectful and affectionate way that Jesus addresses his mother in the Gospel of John. In John chapter 19, as Jesus is on the cross, he says a similar thing. He looks at his mother and he says, Woman, behold your son. And then he says to John the disciple, Behold your mother. Jesus lovingly puts Mary into the care of John, the disciple whom he loved. Jesus loved his mother. And so calling her woman and not mother, Jesus was doing something different than what we would think. Jesus is actually establishing distance from Mary because his ministry is beginning. Jesus took his ministry directives from his heavenly father, not his earthly mother. Jesus did not take on flesh in order to do his mother's will, but his father's will. This contradicts the Roman Catholics who venerate Mary. You don't go through Mary to get to Jesus. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 5 says, There is one mediator between God and man, the man, Jesus Christ. People who pray and bow down to statues of the Virgin Mary do so in vain. She cannot do anything for you. In fact, verse 12 proves that Mary was not a virgin for the rest of her life. Jesus had Brothers, do you see that in verse 12? After this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and his brothers. Jesus had brothers. Mary was not a virgin for her whole entire life. But here in these verses, we see Jesus giving his mother a mild rebuke. He asks, what does this have to do with me? Again, he's using language that's distancing himself from Mary. Now that Jesus is beginning his ministry, everything, including his familiar relationships, are subordinate to the Father's will. 
But could you imagine how difficult this was for Mary? She gave birth to him. She nursed him. She taught him how to walk. She taught him how to talk. And now Mary can no longer relate to Jesus as a mother to a son. She has to come to him as the Messiah, as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, including her own. And there are no shortcuts to Jesus, even if you're his mother. You can only come as a disciple, as one who believes. And that's a word for all of us. You cannot come to Jesus on grounds of what you give. You cannot come to Jesus on the grounds of how often you serve in the church. There are no shortcuts to Jesus. Mary has to come to him as a disciple or not come at all. And in verse 4, Jesus also says to her, my hour has not yet come. Jesus' hour is mentioned seven times in John's gospel, and it's always in reference to his death. Jesus came to this earth to save his people from their sins. And he accomplishes this through dying on the cross, taking our sin upon himself and suffering the wrath of of God. This was the plan of the Father accomplished through the work of the Son. His hour was in reference to his death. And so Jesus isn't saying to Mary, my hour for doing miracles has not yet come. He's saying, it's not my time to die. Why does Jesus say this at this moment, though? Mary comes to Jesus and says, the wine has run out. And Jesus says, woman, it's not my time to die yet. Why is Jesus thinking about his death? Different question. What do single people think about at weddings? They think about their own weddings. They think about whom they're going to marry. So it's very likely that Jesus, being at this wedding, made him think about his own. Most of us know that in the Bible, the church, we are called the bride of Christ. And later on in John chapter 3, John the Baptist will call Jesus the bridegroom. Jesus is thinking about what it's going to take to redeem his bride. He will have to suffer. He'll have to be nailed to a Roman cross and die. This was not his hour, but his hour was quickly approaching. And this wedding feast was reminding him of his hour. So Jesus rebukes Mary because she comes to him in an inappropriate way, but Mary shakes this off. She persists in faith. While it's difficult to hear, she received Jesus' firm response toward her. She got the message that this son of hers is actually, at the same time, the son of God, the creator of the heavens and the earth, the savior of sinners. And so she believes that he will do something in his own timing. You see that in verse 5? His, mo his mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. 
She puts her trust in Jesus and leaves the problem in his hands. And Mary's words should speak to us as well. Do whatever he tells you. John's goal in writing this gospel, the most important thing he wants us to do is to trust Jesus in all things, especially when the wine runs out, when life threatens to overwhelm us. To borrow from the great poet Paul McCartney, Mother Mary comes to me, speaking words of wisdom, do whatever Jesus tells you to do. All right, so we've seen Jesus the guest We've seen Jesus the Son, and now we will see Jesus the host. In verse 6, it says, Now there were six stone jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. All right, so there's these big stone water containers that can each hold up to 20 to 30 gallons of water. And I did the math because I'm not going to do it off the top of my head. So that's 120 to 180 gallons altogether. All right? But what are they doing here? What is 180 gallons of water doing at this wedding? John says that they were there for the Jewish rites of purification. They were there for the washing of hands because you needed to be ritually pure before you could partake of this wedding feast. And the process was there to get rid of sin to get rid of the guilt of sin. And it was something that had to be repeated over and over and over and over again. There was no end to it. And so you have this big party that lasts a long time, and so you need a lot of water. That's what these jars are doing here. And so Jesus tells the servants to fill up the water jars up to the brim. Up to the brim. There's a deeper meaning here. Jesus chose to work this miracle with these jars for a reason. They symbolize the ceremonial law. Remember, in John's prologue, John 1.17 says this, For the law came through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. And here, the promises of God to Israel are fulfilled in Jesus And so in using these water jars, Jesus is saying, religion is empty. It cannot save you. I am the only way to God. If you want rules and rituals and regulations, go to Moses. But if you want grace and truth, run to the cross and trust in Jesus. And what's very interesting is that we don't know exactly when or how this miracle takes place. There isn't this moment where Jesus prays over the water jars. Sometime between the servants filling the water jars and then drawing it out and then bringing it to the master of the feast, that water became wine. And what's mind-blowing here is that there's roughly 120 to 180 gallons of wine in these stone jars. And this wine is brought to the master of the feast. It was this guy's job to make sure everyone had enough to eat, had enough to drink. Look at the text. Notice what impresses the master of the feast. Verses 9 and 10. When the master of the feast tasted the water now become wine and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, 
The master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first, and when the people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. Do you notice that it wasn't the quantity of the wine that they had available that impressed the master of the feast? Jesus had given this couple quite a wedding gift, right? Six purification jars full of the good wine. Wine is one of God's good gifts, and it has to be enjoyed responsibly. So we can all agree, right, that the abuse of alcohol and drunkenness is sinful. But enjoying one of God's good gifts is not. J.C. Ryle points out, if our Lord Jesus Christ actually worked a miracle in order to supply wine at a marriage feast, it seems to me impossible to prove that drinking wine is sinful. The abuse of it is sinful. But the quantity of wine, that's not what impressed the master of the feast. It wasn't the transformation of the water into wine, which is usually what we think, right? The fact that this water somehow miraculously has grapes in it and then ferments into instantaneously. This, this is something that doesn't happen. Water doesn't just become wine. A lot of work and time is involved. We need to keep in mind here. The water obeyed its creator. It skipped the natural process of winemaking and became wine. But this is not what amazes the master of the feast, right? The text says he didn't know where it came from. What amazed him was the quality of the wine. There's poor wine, and then there's good wine. And he says, this is the good wine. He says to the bridegroom, verse 10, everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. The best wine was typically put out first at these wedding feasts, and then the cheap wine was served when the guests couldn't tell the difference. You guys can connect the dots there. But the master of the feast declared the best wine was saved until last. It was the quality of the wine that impressed the master of the feast. Think about our world, though. Our world does the opposite. The world offers the best it has first. The life of sin can be pleasurable, but the pleasures of sin will not last. Immorality will satisfy you for a while, but it will not last. The nightlife may excite you for a while, but it will not last. Getting drunk may numb the pains of life, but it will not last. The wrong friends may please you for a while, but they will not stick around. Money may thrill you for a while, but it will not last. That is the way of the world. It offers pleasures that do not last. But the Christian life is the opposite. The Lord saves the best until last. It gets better all 
the time. And the best is always yet to come. Through these verses, John is pointing out that now that Jesus has come, he is bringing in the new. And this theme will repeat chapter 2, chapter 3, chapter 4 over the next weeks and months over and over and over again. Jesus will introduce himself as the one who is bringing something new. He gives new wine. He will bring a new temple. With Nicodemus, he tells him that he needs a new birth. He would tell the woman at the well, that water will never satisfy. You need new water. You need living water. This Jesus who turns water into wine can make sinners into new creations. The Apostle Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 5.17, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed, the new has come. Amen? This brings us to the end. In verse 11, he says, This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. Two things happen as a result of this first miracle. Jesus reveals his glory, and his disciples believe in him. Remember, Jesus said to Nathaniel last week, Because I saw you under the fig tree, you believe? You're going to see greater things than these. Here already, these disciples are seeing greater things. They're witnessing his glory. And then John uses that word signs specifically, intentionally. He's not so much pointing to Jesus' great power in performing miracles, but he's showing what these miracles point to. They point to something. They teach us about Jesus. So what are we learning here? Well, we better turn to the Old Testament. Hosea chapter 2. I know that's probably going to be hard for some people. I'm in that same boat, so if you just want to listen, that's perfectly fine. Hosea chapter 2, verses 16 through 20. And in that day, declares the Lord, you will call me my husband. And no longer will you call me my Baal, for I will remove the names of the Baals from her mouth, and they shall be remembered by name no more. And I will make a covenant for them on that day with the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, and the creeping things of the ground, and I will abolish the bow, the sword, and war from the land, and I will make you lie down in safety, and I will betroth you to me forever." I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice, in steadfast love and in mercy. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness, and you shall know the Lord. And then also Amos chapter 9, verses 13 and 14. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord when the plowman shall overtake the reaper and the treader of grapes him who sows the seed. The mountains shall drip sweet wine and all the hills shall flow with it. I will restore the fortunes of my people Israel and they shall rebuild the ruined cities and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and drink their wine and they shall make gardens and eat 
their fruit. There's many more passages like this in the Old Testament. And all these Old Testament images of betrothal and the bridegroom and the wine and the feasting was describing the messianic age that would come when God would come visit his people and bring his kingdom. And now Jesus is at a wedding when the wine has run out and he turns water into wine. This is a sign that the time has come. Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus himself is the new wine. The age of the new wine and the celebration is at hand. Everything that the prophets anticipated is beginning to happen. God has saved the best for last. That ceremonial washing of hands is now put aside and it's replaced with something new. The lamb came to fulfill the law and to replace it with grace. Jesus fulfills that ceremonial cleansing with complete spiritual and eternal cleansing by his own blood shed on the cross. What a wonderful sign for all of those who believe. We don't need animal sacrifices or ceremonial cleansing water because Jesus has poured out his blood as the final and perfect sacrifice for our sins. We have complete forgiveness and cleansing because we've been washed by the blood of the lamb. This is the first of the signs. And though they did not fully understand it, the only people that knew what was happening were the servants and the disciples. The guests don't know. The bride and the groom don't know. Jesus kept it concealed to those he wanted to know. But guess what? This morning, you will now know. The reason for this sign was that his disciples would see his glory and believe. That we would see his glory and believe. That you would see more of Jesus and continue believing. And don't miss the fact that Jesus' miracle meets a real need for a real person. Jesus, the word made flesh, the one who came from the right hand of the Father's side, cares about us. There's nothing that we cannot bring to him in prayer. If he will meet a material need, like wine at a wedding, think about the spiritual needs he'll meet. So what do you do with Jesus? Maybe you have felt like the wine has run out in your own life. There's no joy left. Maybe this morning you feel guilty. Maybe you've tried living life your own way and you're realizing that there is no joy there. Has the wine run out in your own life? Look to Jesus. See what he has come to do. His hour has now come. He has died for the sins of those who believe in him. He has come to make all things new and bring lasting joy. He's here to bring the best wine 
that satisfies forever. And then the Bible tells us that there is a great wedding coming. When the church will unite with her Lord forever. And there will be a great wedding supper of the Lamb. My question to you this morning, will you be there? Only those who trust that Jesus is the Son of God, those who see his glory and believe in him, will be there. So have you seen his glory? Do you believe? Jesus' new wine gives abundant joy to all who see and believe. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, as we begin to just scratch the surface of this beautiful, beautiful story, we pray that we would see Jesus for who he is, what he has done for us. Lord, work in our hearts that we may come to you with faith and in repentance, and that we may not miss out on the feast that is to come that is bigger and better than we can ever imagine, and that we would be filled with abundant and lasting joy. In Jesus' name, amen.